Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have woken us to a new Sabbath and that you have blessed us with yet another opportunity to study your word. As we take a glimpse into the great controversy today, may we recognize our role in this great galactic battle. And may we choose the right side. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 12, last week we covered sort of half of the chapter. What we did was we gave you a brief outline of what the chapter is about, and then we skipped around a little bit. So what we talked about last week was the woman, the woman clothed in light, clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, crown of 12 stars. We saw that that represented God's pure church, and that church was not one specific static entity. It started out as the Jewish nation because we saw that the woman was travailing in birth, gave birth to Jesus Christ, but later on was persecuted in the wilderness, and clearly that was no longer the Jewish nation. That became the pure church of the wilderness, as some people call it. And uh, we also saw the dragon. The dragon was specifically identified in verse 9 as Satan or the devil, and it's synonymous with being a serpent. But the dragon is also a beast. And we saw that this chapter described the seven-headed dragon as a political power through which Satan worked. So initially, it was the pagan Roman Empire that tried to kill Jesus as a baby. And then it transitions into the papal power, which persecuted the church during the Dark Ages for the 1260 years. That's an important point to remember because in Revelation chapter 17, we see another beast with seven heads. And this gives us a clue how to interpret that seven heads because it happens to be a matter of great contention uh, within the church. But we're not there quite yet, so you have to wait till we get there. And we also talked about the, uh, the three divisions of the woman or the church. Apostolic church, which happens prior to the 1260, the wilderness church, which happens during the 1260, and then the remnant church, which takes place after the 1260. And we talked about the apostolic church already, and we started to touch on the wilderness church. Uh, but we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to try to go in order now through the rest of this chapter, because last week we didn't have time. So let's begin in verse 6. I'll just read it real quickly so we get our bearing. Verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. So we begin by looking at the wilderness experience. The woman flees to the wilderness. But then when we look down to verse 13 and 14, we see the dragon is persecuting the woman who brought forth the man-child, and she was given two wings, and she flew into the wilderness for time, times, and half a time. So it repeats the time frame again. But in between those verses, we have sort of a parenthetical reference, parenthetical insertion where the scene changes. Because prior to this, we were looking on the earth. The woman was an entity that was operating, that existed on the earth. But in verse 7, we look in heaven. Okay, so verse 7 through verse 12 is a parenthetical insertion that gives us some backstory. It's like a flashback 
that gives us some context about why this is happening between the woman and the dragon. Okay? And you've got to understand the Jewish mind, when John was writing, it's not, a very, it's not logically or sequentially uh, organized like we think of how things should be organized. We say we go through chronologically to write things down. They write things down as the thought best uh, should be presented. So it's organized by thought pattern. And so the book of Revelation, you notice, if you try to study it chronologically, you're going to be in trouble. But if you study it based on themes and ideas, then you're, you're on better ground. Okay, so just a little side note. So let's have a volunteer who can read for us. Verses 7 through 9. Revelation 12. Okay, Mike in the front. 12, verse 7 through 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was there found any more, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. All right. So in a very brief nutshell, we see a picture of what happened in heaven. And according to this, these verses, it's uncertain when this took place. But we know, based on um, other sources, inspired sources, and also through reasoning through Genesis and also the book of Job, we know this took place actually prior to the creation of the world. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought and the dragon fought. Now, I am not intending to go in-depth about Michael, but let me suffice it to say that Michael is Jesus. Jesus is the archangel. Michael the archangel is what he's called in other places. Archangel simply means leader of the angels. It does not mean he is of the same created status as the angels. And again, we've looked at Revelation chapter 10. Jesus is described as a mighty angel. Revelation chapter 8, he was an angel standing before the golden altar with, an ins um, with the incense, the censer of incense. So I don't want to get into that. We have too many other things to cover. But so Jesus and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. And the devil and his angels were cast out where? They were cast out into the earth. And notice that he was cast out. You see that? Cast out. Now let's have someone read for us verse 10 and 11. Eric. Verse 10 and 11. Uh -huh. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. All right. We see the verse 10 now something else happens. But I'm about to tell you something that may not make sense, but I think, see if you can follow me. 
verse 10, when the Bible says, now is the salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and power of his Christ, when that comes, that is actually not at the moment that Satan was cast out of heaven. Why do I say that? You remember in verse 9, the devil and his angels, they were cast out. But in verse 10, Satan is cast down. There's a difference. You can be cast out, but you can also still be not casted down. Now, when you look also at this verse, when is it that salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ, when was that realized? Exactly. It, was ha- it happened at the cross. Prior to Jesus' death on the cross, salvation had not fully, is not fully, um, I need to be careful what I say, was, has not, the propitiation has not been given. The sacrifice had not been given. And in addition, you can study this out, the idea of the character of God was not clearly revealed to the unfallen universe until Christ came and died on the cross. After Christ's death on the cross, there is no more sympathy for Satan in heaven. And that is why he's cast down. And that is why in verse 12 it says, Therefore rejoice ye heavens, but woe be unto them who live on the earth. Because things, as far as heaven is concerned, they're not going to be tempted by Satan any longer because they've already seen his true colors. But for those of us on the earth, we we still have to be convinced. And we still have some time. Okay. Taking a step back here, verse 10 gives us the clue of what type of war this is about. We see that Michael and his angels fought against a dragon and his angels. And in our modern day and age, we think about fighting as a physical contention between two parties. You know, nuclear war or maybe, you know, some space laser phasers, whatever. But... Did the angels really rough it out? You know, they started wrestling. Is that what they did? Plucked out their wings? Verse 10 tells us what kind of a war this was. It's a war of words. Satan accused the brethren. His accusations came up before God and the unfallen worlds day and night. So now the question is, what were his accusations? And what were those accusations that at the cross, Christ was able to answer and to silence? What, what were those accusations? Okay, let's look at a few verses together. Let's have a volunteer, if you can look up Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Zechariah chapter 3. Verses 1 through 4, okay, up in the front. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. 3 verse 4? Yes. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, 
I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the change of raiment. Okay. Very uh, moving story here. It's a parable in a way. And we see Joshua, the high priest, who is a representative of God's people. And Satan was standing there, in the King James it says, to resist him. In the margin it says to be an adversary, or if I could use the word, as his accuser. We don't see exactly what Satan says here, but we can induce, or we can look at and figure out what he was basically accusing God and Joshua of. What did God actually say to Satan, though, first of all? Did he argue with him? Did he reason with him? What did God say? The Lord rebuke thee. And then he, and God continues to go on to do the work that he was about to do for Joshua, which is change his raiment. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, but Christ's righteousness is the white and clean linen uh, that is spun in the loom of heaven, something to that effect. But here we go. We see here that the first accusation in Zechariah, although Satan doesn't say it, we can see it. Satan says, God, you have no right to forgive this sinful man. You cannot forgive him. And the logic, if you forgive him, you have to forgive me. Hmm. Accusation number one, and what was God's response to that accusation? Accusation against God's forgiving power? Does God even begin to reason with Satan? He just says, the Lord rebuke thee. I have nothing to say to you. Get thee behind me, Satan. Right? Next accusation. Let's look in the book of Job. Job chapter 1, verses 6 through, 6 through 12. Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Let's have a volunteer. Quickly, quickly. Anyone? Okay, here. Manja in the front. Thank you very much. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and is true with evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Has not thou made an hedge around him, about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself. Put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Thank you. Familiar story, right? Job, the book of Job opens with this scene in heaven. The sons of God, meaning the representatives of the unfallen worlds, gather before God sort of as a, I don't know, a little report or a little council maybe. And Satan comes as the representative of this earth. And God ventures to say, have you considered Job? And then Satan then hurls the next accusation against God. The accusation is simply this. 
your people, specifically Job in this case, obey you only because you bless them. So the second accusation has to do with the holy lives, the obedience of God's people. Number one was forgiveness. Number two was obedience. And what was God's response in this case? Test him. God says, have at it. Do whatever you want to him. Chapter 2, we see that it continues. God says, do anything you want to him except take his life. And uh, there are a lot of things worse than being dead. And uh, Job went through it. He went through it. So that was a second accusation. And it's interesting to see God's responses to each of these accusations. But there's a third accusation. So the first one, forgiveness. Second one, obedience. Third one, it's in the book of Jude. Jude, only one chapter in Jude, verse 9. Jude, verse 9. Just one verse. Okay, Rachel, thank you. Jude, verse 9. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So here we see a third accusation between Michael, the archangel, or Jesus, and Satan. And what were they disputing about? The body of Moses. And what did Jesus want to do with Moses? Raise him from the dead. How do we know this? Well, we know this because... He was resurrected. He, was, he appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he was resurrected. But here we see Satan's accusation is, God, you have no right to resurrect the dead. They belong to me. You see that accusation. And God, what was his response? The same response as in Zechariah. The Lord rebuked thee. So three accusations. The first one has to do with forgiveness. The second one has to do with obedience. The third one has to do with the resurrection. And in the first case, with forgiveness, God simply says, I'm not going to argue with you, Satan. I rebuke you. With resurrection, God says the same thing. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm just going to do it. Get thee behind me. But when it comes to the life, the holiness of God's people, God says, you can test them. I'm going to give you some, chan- some chances here. Something interesting to think about. We're going to come back to that. But if we- I can put it this way. These three accusations, Christ completely annihilated. I should say, at least for the unfallen universe, these accusations no longer hold any water. The first one is the idea of justification. Second one, sanctification. And the third one, glorification. Or in other words, the plan of salvation answered Satan's accusations. Through the plan of righteousness by faith, Christ can one by one annihilate every single accusation. But this requires a choice on our part. And that is why Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, this is what we see. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says, And they overcame him, meaning God's people overcame him, by the blood of the Lamb. 
And the blood of the Lamb is what grants justification from our sins. By the word of their testimony, the word of, from a life, a testimony of a holy life, a life that is in harmony with God, and they love not their lives unto death. Why? Because they're going to be resurrected one day. These are the three tools by which Satan will at last be defeated. It requires a choice on our part. Christ at his death, he provided the provision for every single one of these steps. Justification, the blood was shed. Testimony or word of their testimony, Christ's holy life was an example to us to follow in his footsteps. His death and resurrection was the first fruit he became the first begotten, so we have the assurance that we too can love not our lives into death because one day we can have the blessing of resurrection as well. So see the great controversy at the cross? That's the crux, the fulcrum, if you will, the tipping point. But yet, the conflict is not over. For the heavenly intelligences, it is. Christ adequately proved the point. But for those on earth, there are still some unresolved issues. And we're going to look at that. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knows that he hath but a short time. Why, is it, why, why should the heavenly intelligence rejoice? Because Satan will no longer harass them. He's done with them. Or they're done with him, I should say. But woe be unto us who still live on this earth because Satan, his fury is focused like a laser beam specifically on us. And from there, John transitions back to the wilderness church and that he's sort of saying, by the way, everyone, this is why the dragon is so angry with the woman. That makes sense? Why he went to this flashback and now he's coming back. Now we get some context about why the devil is so angry. And so we see that the woman flees into the wilderness. And by the way, there is so much to study. You know, forgive me if I'm just like hopping and skipping. There are a lot of things I, I know I'm not going in depth into. But anyway, one thing though that I, I will say as, a, as an application. I was talking with a doctor in Malaysia a couple weeks ago who has been a missionary to Africa and India several times. He's had malaria five times. And uh, he's lived out in the boondocks with no electricity. Amazing guy. He told me something that, you know, makes a lot of sense. The most feared warriors, soldiers, are those who are unafraid of death. Those, they are the most dangerous. And so the Christians that Satan fear the most are those who don't fear death either. And that is why the Bible says they love not their lives into death. And the final generation, if we are to finish the work, if we're afraid to die, then we're not going to be doing as much as we can. Something to think about. And also Revelation 14 verse 6, 13 is also a promise. We're not there yet, but I'll just inject this. It says, Blessed are they who die from henceforth, for their work, works do follow them. Those who preach the three angels' messages, there's a blessing for those even if they do die. Okay. Back to the church in the wilderness. Okay, I'm going to hop and skip here. Last week, we talked about the significance of being in the wilderness for three and a half years. 
because there's another prophet who was in the wilderness for three and a half years, or so to say, three and a half years. And that prophet was Elijah. Three and a half years of no rain. And this wilderness church for three and a half years was receiving Elijah training because in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, there's a prophecy that before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Elijah will come again. So this church in the wilderness, they were being prepared for the final Elijah message. And also, we talked about another Bible story that gives us the food that nourishes God's people in the wilderness. Because here in Revelation 12, we see that uh, she is nourished for a time. And in verse 6, it says they should feed her there. So it's very specific that in the wilderness, she's eating something. She's receiving nourishment. And what is wilderness nourishment? What does God give to his people when they're traveling in the wilderness? Manna. Let's look in Revelation 3 very quickly. I'm going to go backwards a little bit. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. I'm just going to reference this, so I'm not going to have anyone read it. In the church of Thyatira, which is the church in uh, darkness or in the Middle Ages, we see Jezebel. Okay, Jezebel the prophetess. Verse 21, God says, I gave her space to repent. And space in ancient Israel when Jezebel was alive, how long was it that God gave her the chance to repent? Three and a half years. You can also see this in the book of James. But right prior to this period, God promises to those who overcome something very special. What is it? Let's look in verse 17. Church of Pergamos, to those who overcome, I will give to eat the hidden manna. So you see, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air here. We're connecting this to the seven churches. Prior to the 1260 days of darkness, chapter 2, you're right. (laughs) It's in chapter 2. Sorry. I was uh, getting ahead of myself. But in chapter 2, so this Wilderness church receives hidden manna. And manna is bread from heaven, and bread can also be the word. So in a broad sense, they were given word, the word of God, that was not publicly available to other people. But specifically the truth that manna was to teach the children of Israel, you can look it up in Exodus 16, is to teach them the Sabbath. So the Sabbath message was that hidden manna. And why was it hidden? Because it was so obscure. The Sabbath was almost lost during the Dark Ages, but God miraculously preserved it through his faithful people. You know, here and there, small pockets, not the majority by by far. And so this church that is about to come out of the wilderness, she's been fed with wilderness food, hidden manna, the secret of the Sabbath. But verse 15, in Revelation 12 now, we see, And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Now, a couple applications here. You notice that the dragon now becomes a serpent. We know that they're the same person, same, same devil, same Satan. But how a person is described often gives a little hint of what is the characteristic that is being emphasized. So what is the characteristic of the serpent? 
when he appeared for the first time in the Bible, what was he doing? He was a liar. Deceiving, exactly right. So the serpent represents deception. Satan working through deceptive means. The dragon, he's working through political means or political power or brute force, military force. Serpent represents deception. And so during the 1260 years, did, did Satan try to ruin the church through deception? Oh, yes. Many deceptions. Sunday sacredness is one of them. And also uh, the priesthood of all believers was undermined. Justification by faith was undermined. You know, the list goes on and on, bowing down to idols, all sorts of things. But specifically, what was the deception, the first deception by the Satan, uh, by the serpent? He said, thou shalt not surely die. So what is one of the main deceptions that creeps in to take the church as a flood? It is the idea of the immortality of the soul. Immortality of the soul. And we are told in the book Great Controversy, Immortality of the soul, as well as Sunday sacredness, will be two of the great final deceptions. And it comes as a flood. But a couple other applications here. When a beast, you know, if we're looking at the dragon, in verse 16, we see that the flood also is attributed to the dragon. When a dragon or, or a political beast, something comes out of his mouth, what does that represent? When a political beast, in chapter 13, we're going to see this again. When a beast speaks, that's right, legislation. And a flood, waters, Revelation 17, verse 15, waters represent multitudes, peoples, nations, and tongues. So there is legislation for mass persecution through political means. And in the Dark Ages, that's exactly what we saw. Attempted mass extermination of the Waldensians in the Alps. St. Bartholomew's Massacre, the Huguenots, exactly, that's, that's what, who uh, I believe the Calvinists, they were the ones being massacred in that case, and also the Inquisition, legislated means to exterminate mass groups of people. But when we look at the Bible, we see that the earth helped the woman. Verse 16, we see that the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood. And specifically the earth, what does it represent? It's the opposite of water. Water, multitudes, nations, peoples, tongues. What does the earth represent? An unpopulated region. And around the end of the 1260 days, around 1798 or thereabouts, was there a fairly unpopulated land that, caught, that was an avenue to help stop the persecution. We are standing on the soil of that nation. The United States arose at about the right time, right at the end of this period of persecution, for God to move the faithful to a place where they can have freedom to develop the remnant church. The remnant church. And uh, this is all going to be expanded in chapter 13. So remember, chapter 12 is an overview. Chapter 13 is emphasizing Satan, the dragon's activities. Chapter 14 emphasizes the remnant's activities. So this is just all an overview. But verse 17, 
This is where I want to focus the rest of our time. And I think I have about 10 minutes. 10 minutes, right, Norm? Seven minutes. Oh, boy. So in verse, tw uh, verse 17, we're going to go through this quickly. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We already know why the, why the serpent was angry. For one reason. Uh, I don't know how much to go into. But um, I'll just reference the Bible story. Numbers chapter 16, we see a story in which the earth opened up and swallowed something. It was the rebellion of Korah. And in that case, Korah also was accusing God, specifically accusing God's leadership, God's appointed sources of authority. And they were claiming to be that source of authority. So Satan was doing the same thing, claiming to be in the place of God. God op allowed the earth to open up her mouth to swallow up the flood, which identified that God was actually on the side of the woman. That's exactly what happened in number 16. God opened up the mouth, or, or the earth opened up its mouth, and that was God's way of indicating, I am standing on Moses and Aaron's side, not on Korah, Dathan, and Abiram's side. Okay, so Satan especially now is very upset because God had made it abundantly clear, I'm not standing on your side. I am picking the woman and the remnant of her seed. But there are other reasons here. Um, I'm just going to... You know, we can talk about the remnant, the relationship of the seed, about how the woman gave birth again. All of these terms in the Bible, travailing in birth at the end of time. But they have the commandments of God. They keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19 verse 10 tells us, testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation chapter 22 <clears throat> those who, the brethren, the prophets, are also those who um, are referred to as having the testimony of Jesus. You can look at those verses later. I think uh, that's something that you must have heard before. But let's look in Matthew chapter 5. Keep your finger here in Revelation 12. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I believe. I'll just read this for the sake of time. It says, Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Jesus said when he came to this earth, he was to fulfill the law and the testimony. And that Heaven and earth will not pass away as long as the law stands. So let's look in 2 Peter, I believe. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. Or 10 through 12, I guess. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the element shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in a holy conversation and godliness, 
looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. So Jesus in Matthew says, Till all be fulfilled, heaven and earth shall not pass. But in Second Peter we see that someday heaven and earth will pass. So it stands to reason that there's going to come a time when the law and the prophets will be fulfilled. And if you look in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, this remnant church, they keep the commandments of God, which is the law of God, and have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. So this remnant church specifically has the law and the prophets. And this remnant church specifically, Revelation 14, brings about the close of this world's history. So what that means that this remnant church is going to fulfill the law and the prophets. What does that mean? I am running out of time, but let me give you this reference. Hebrews chapter 10, and it's actually the whole chapter. Specifically verses 12, uh, verses 10, I believe, or 12 through 17, or 16 and 17 specifically. The fulfillment of the law is when God writes the law in your heart and in your mind. And the, that chapter proves that by saying the, law, the sacrifices of bulls and goats, they could not take away the conscience of sin. But when God writes the law in your hearts and writes it in your mind, He'll blot out your sins and He'll remember them no more. And if God doesn't remember your sin, you better believe that you're not going to remember your sins. Fulfillment of the law means the law being written in our hearts and minds. Last point. Fulfillment of the prophets. Revelation chapter 10 verse 7. Revelation chapter 10 verse 7 says, In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, mystery of God shall be finished as was declared to the prophets. The law and the prophets will be fulfilled by the remnant church. And that will bring the second coming. Okay. Ran out of time. I'm going to sit down now. And God bless you.